0: I invite you this morning to open your Bibles to the book of 1 Peter. I invite you to open to chapter 3. After more than a month away from the book of 1 Peter, we're coming back again. Um, My message this morning is entitled, The Good Life. The good life, isn't that what everyone seeks? Everyone seeks the, the good life. I don't believe it's an accident that Joel Osteen's book entitled Your Best Life Now rose to the top of the New York bestsellers list. This is a secular list. Your Best Life Now rose up there where it remained for four years. Maybe it was two years. Several years right there on the top. Because people are seeking the good life. Now, the pursuit of that life might look different to different people. Some may seek it by following Joel Osteen's poor advice of how to use religion to get riches. I don't think that's the best. Or use religion just to get your means. I don't think that's the best way. Some pursue the good life by pursuing after the American dream. They want to grow up, get a job, get a spouse, have 2.4 kids, have... Save up for retirement in Arizona. That's the good life. Some may seek the good life by pursuing pleasure, longing for the weekends where they can go fishing. I remember at a former workplace where I was. I knew a guy who went fishing every Saturday, every Saturday, all winter long. So in the, all winter and summer long. So in the summer he fished on a boat, and the winter he ice fished. Just that's what he longed for. He loved to go fishing. Some people love for that. They pursue the good life by pursuing fishing. Some pursue it by purchasing their alcohol. They work, they get money, they can buy their alcohol so they can drink every night. Some pursue the good life that way. Some live for the next video game or or movie or party or vacation. Always living for the next pleasure. Some seek the good life through fame or some seek the good life through power or influence. But ultimately, all such pursuits of the good life will end in futility. That's not where the good life is found. It's not found in wisdom, alcohol, materialism, nature, power, money, music, sex. That's what, that's what Solomon sought it. Solomon was the wisest man. He was the richest man. He was the man who indulged in the most pleasure. And at the end of the day, he found it all to be vanity. Listen to what Solomon said. He said, I explored with my mind. How to stimulate my body with wine while my mind was guiding me wisely. And how to take hold of folly until I could see what good there is for the sons of men to do under heaven the few years of their lives. I enlarged my works. I built houses for myself. I planted vineyards for myself. I made gardens and parks for myself. I planted them in all kinds of fruit trees. I made ponds of water for myself from which to irrigate the forest of growing trees. I bought male and female slaves. I had home-born slaves. Also, I possessed flocks and herds larger than all who preceded me in Jerusalem. Also, I collected for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. I provided for myself male and female singers and the pleasures of men, many concubines. And then I became great and increased more than all who preceded me in Jerusalem. My wisdom also stood by me. And all that my eyes desired, I did not refuse them. I did not withhold my heart from any pleasure. For my heart was pleased because of all my labor. And this was my reward for all my labor. And then he gets to the end of all these things. And listen to what he says. He says, Thus I considered all my activities which my hands had done and the labor which I had exerted. And behold, all was vanity and striving after wind. And there was no profit under the sun. Now, Solomon's life ought to teach us that the good life isn't to be found in pursuing the pleasures of the world. Nobody has ever amounted the mass of wealth that Solomon did. Nobody has ever been gifted with this much wisdom that he had. Nobody ever had more wives than he had, and yet when he pursued earthly pleasures, it was all vanity. It was empty. But you know, the Bible does describe the good life that we can have. In our text this morning, Peter will tell us how to have the good life. The good life comes in community. The good life comes in community. I can't tell you how many people I've talked to about church and uh, about just Christ. And I just say, you know what? Church is where it's at. You know, when I'm going out, I remember, I think it was last week, Going out, driving to church and seeing my neighbors gathering up their golf bags to go out going golfing. You know, I, I just pity them because they're seeking happiness in a golf game rather than seeking happiness where true happiness is found in a community of believers who rejoice in Christ. That's where it's at. We're not here because we have to be here. We're here because it's the best place to be. But our, our text, it's interesting, goes further than this. Peter tells us that God saves us so that we can have a good life. all right? As so I read verses 8-12 through 12 of chapter 3. See if you can pick it out. The purpose of why He saves us. To sum up, all of you be harmonious, sympathetic, brotherly, kind-hearted, and humble in spirit. Not returning evil for evil or insult for insult, but giving a blessing instead. For you are called for the very purpose that you might inherit a blessing. For the one who desires life to love and see good days must keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. He must turn away from evil and do good. He must seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous, and his ears attend to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Now, when attacking these verses, I think the best place to begin is the last half of verse 9. It's here that we see the reason why it is that God saves us. Look there, it says, "...for you were called for the very purpose that you might inherit a blessing." In other words, God calls us and He saves us and He brings us into His kingdom for a specific purpose that we might inherit a blessing. Now, certainly we know that this will take place when we die or when Christ comes back. I mean, that is the message of 1 Peter, right? Right? I mean, the inheritance that you receive in heaven is so far above and beyond anything you have on earth. That's what we're living for. We're living for the hope of heaven. Look back at chapter 1, verse 3. How God saves us. How He calls us to look there, not here. It says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Here it is. God causes us to be born again. To this hope through the resurrection of Christ, so that we might obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and unfading, reserved in heaven for you who are protected by the power of God through faith, for the salvation ready to be revealed at the last time. So God saves us that so we might inherit this blessing. And this blessing is so gigantic and so huge and so glorious that even a few trials, as it says in verse six, now for a little while. If necessary, you've been distressed by various trials. That doesn't derail us. It just gives us a greater hunger and appetite for where it is that we are going. And the hope we have in the future gives us reason to rejoice today, even through our sufferings. And this hope ought to be where we think, where we place our affections. Look at verse 13. Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Right? There's a the hope there that will get us through the trials now. Or as I've often said, first Peter, what is it? Suffer now, glory later. But you know, it's interesting, as much as first as Peter's focus is on blessing that comes later, there is a blessing that comes today as well. It's not all future. The blessing that God has for those who trust his son isn't only for the life to come. Look at chapter 3 verse 9. You are called for this purpose. You might inherit a blessing. Then he gives a proof in verse 10 and following. Quote from Psalm 34. It's the word of explanation. Right? For is how verse 10 begins. Here is why. The one who desires life to love and see good days. Right? Must do these things. Right? The one who, who desires life to really live here upon the earth. To, to see good days here upon the earth. Must behave in this way. And I think that Peter's point is clear these verses, we ought to seek the good life. And we ought to seek it now. Now, contrary to many, the good life isn't in merely material possessions we have. The good life isn't going to come in pleasures that we experience. Rather, it comes as we give ourselves to others. It's the message today. As we give ourselves to others in community. Because when we do so, we walk righteously, the favor of God will be upon our life. Right? Verse 12. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous, and his ears attend to their prayer. And we know that God's eyes are upon us. We know that we can live the good life. Well, let's dig into my, my text this morning. Verses 8 through 9. My point is this called to harmony. Called to harmony. I get this idea of calling from the middle of verse 9. You are called for this purpose. You say, well, what purpose is that? Well, he had just talked about giving a blessing. And then he says, you've been called for this purpose, you might inherit a blessing. I think what he's calling them to is calling them to everything in verses 8 and 9. Being harmonious and being sympathetic and being brotherly and being humble in spirit. And not returning evil for evil or insult for insult, but giving a blessing instead. These are seven exhortations to which we are all called. And all these exhortations you have to do with living in community. Now, in previous paragraphs, Peter had focused his attention upon particular segments of the the churches he's writing to with particular roles to be fulfilled. First, he gives a general exhortation to everyone. Look at chapter 2, verse 11. Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against the soul. This is going out to everybody. This is going out to every believer in Christ. Abstain from the fleshly lusts. They wage war in your soul. Why? Because we're different than the world. We are aliens and strangers. And then he speaks about living outside the church. Verse 12. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles. So in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. You've to keep your behavior excellent. So when people see your behavior, they will glorify God because you're living differently than the world is living and then, starting in verse 13, he's gonna focus his attention upon different groups of people. First is the free people. You who are citizens, live in such a way that you submit yourselves to the human authorities. That's verse 13. And then chapter 2 verse 18, talking about servants, these who aren't free, but who have masters, they likewise should be submissive to their masters, even to those who are unreasonable. Because that's the way a Christian's life works itself out. A lot of submission and harmony, and we'll see that here in verse 8. And then, after a brief ex- talk here about the example of Christ, he comes in verse 3, to chapter 3, verse 1. That you've got wives. Wives should submit to their own husbands, even to disobedient husbands. And then, chapter 3, verse 7, he talks about our husbands. Husbands ought to live with their wives in an understanding way. And show her honor. Lift up your wife and honor your wife is how we're to be called, called to live. And so Peter's bounced around for these different, different paragraphs from free people to, to servants to wives to husbands. And now he's coming to speak about all of us. All of you is what it says here in, in verse 8. All of you do this. Right? And, and I think in some sense he starts this. Phrase here in verse 8, to sum up, better is the translation, finally. We've talked about all this ways of all of you acting in this ways, but summing it up, finally, here's the way you want to act. Here's the way that you ought to act. I've been addressing various people in various different circumstances, but today and right now I come to you, every single one of you. If you've been drifting because the last few paragraphs haven't really been addressed to you, you say, I'm a girl and I'm eight years old. What does this have to do with husbands? Right? Or maybe you're a teenage boy and you think about the three weeks we spent on women. It's like, ah. But you know what? All of you, come back. Come back because this exhortation comes to all of you. And I don't care whether you're an elder in the church or a nursery worker or a worship leader or usher. These words are applied to you. I don't care whether you're a man, a woman, a child, a brother or sister. These words apply to you. I don't care whether you're seven years old or whether you're 77 years old. All these words apply to you. All of us are called to be harmonious. All of us are called to be sympathetic. All of us are called to be brotherly. All of us are called to be kind-hearted. All of us are called to be humble in spirit. All of us are called not to return evil for evil or insult for insult. We're to speak kindly with others even when insulted. what all of us are to be. Now you think about that. These things I just said... We need to be harmonious, sympathetic, brotherly, kind hearted, humble in spirit, not returning evil for evil or insult for insult. I mean, are those things difficult to understand? Quite frankly, they're not. I mean, I I barely need to exposit the words because they're so plain and easy to understand. But as easy as they are to understand, they are very difficult to apply, even in the church. And my aim this morning in my prayer is that by thinking upon them, we might... Be doers of the word, not merely hearers only. Who can apply these things? John John Stott well describes the difficulty. He says this The problem we experience whenever we think about the church concerns the tension between the ideal and the reality. The ideal church is beautiful. The church is the chosen and beloved people of God, His own special treasure, the covenant community to whom He has committed Himself forever. Engaged in continuous worship of God and in compassionate outreach to the world. A haven of love and peace and a pilgrim people headed for an eternal city. That's the church, right? In reality, John Stott says, We who claim to be the church are often a motley rabble of rather scruffy individuals. Half educated and half saved uninspired in our worship, constantly bickering with each other, concerned more for our maintenance than for our mission, struggling and stumbling along the road, needing constant rebuke and exhortation, which are readily available from both the Old Testament prophets and the New Testament apostles. The ideal we can see and understand and rejoice in, and yet the real we see and know all too well. Well, in fact, I believe even that apart from the Lord, these things here, verses 8 and 9, are just outright impossible. Nike's slogan, Just Do It, is no help at all. We need help from the Lord. So I just want to take, take a brief moment here to pray and to seek the Lord would apply these things to our heart. Let's pray. Lord, uh, uh, I think of these things of how we need to live in harmony with each other, how we need to be sympathetic with one another, how we need to act brotherly toward one another, be kind-hearted, humble in spirit, not being provoked, returning evil with blessing. I pray, God, Your help. Please come and be with us and convict hearts. God, where we need to grow in these things, I pray that they would be a focus of our hearts and our minds, that we might know a a taste of the ideal church, rather than the real church, because you so stir in our hearts. So I pray for, for all the people here. I pray you'd, you'd touch our hearts, especially this morning. I pray for families, Lord, where this doesn't happen in families but rather where there is strife and tension and hatred and fighting and proud, arrogance, bickering. I pray, Lord, that today You would use this message God, to convict where conviction needs to be and, and bring improvement, God, not because we are able in ourselves, but because Christ, You are the one working in us, both to will and to do, for Your good pleasure. So, Lord, in that we we do pray. I pray also for the leadership of the church. I pray this would be the case among us. Help us, God, in all these things to exhibit these qualities toward one another. Lord, ultimately for Your glory. I pray as I preach these things, may Your Spirit convict and lead us and guide us. Lord, I've prayed long here because I know that, that we can't just do it and we need You, so come and help us. Pray in Christ's name, amen. All right, let's, let's begin with these seven characteristics. And by the way, as I was preparing my message, all we're going to do is get through eight and nine. This is part one today. We'll do part two next week of the good life. First of all, we need to be harmonious. Literally, the word here is to be of the same mind. It means we need to think the same thing, need to have the same goals, need to work towards a common goal. A good illustration of this comes from the book of Philippians. Paul told those in Philippi to conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the Gospel of Christ so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind striving together for the faith of the Gospel. Paul's in prison. He's writing to them. He's just saying, be of one mind. Be of one heart. Be of one soul. Strive together for the faith of the Gospel. That's what harmony is talking about. A few sentences later in Philippians, he says, Make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Just seeking the one thing, be united in all ways. And the picture that Paul gives here in Philippians is one of unity, like-mindedness, understanding the call of the gospel upon our lives as it affects our relationship. And that's Peter's point as well. That those in the church ought to live in harmony with each other. Not like Yodi and Syntyche who couldn't get along with one another. And such actions are not worthy of the gospel because implicit in the gospel it is a message of reconciliation one to another. Jews and Gentiles living together. Different people living together in harmony. That's the picture of the church. And so we need to live in harmony with one another. For the sake of the Gospel of Christ. And there's a blessing that comes when brothers dwell in unity together. Psalm 133, verse 1, Behold how good and how pleasant it is for brothers to dwell together in unity. That's the good life. When brothers and sisters are living in harmony with each other. But when there's tension in the church, it's terrible. Proverbs 17, verse 1 speaks of the family. Better is a dry morsel and quietness with it than a house full of feasting and strife. So it's better to be in a a house that's poor where you're starving, but there's peace there than to be a house with abundant riches flow and there is discontent. You could change that to apply it to the church, which is probably where the context of this is. Better is a small church with few resources. Than a big church with resources and strife. It's more pleasant. It's more blessing. It is the good life. The good life is a peaceful, harmonious life. Well, Peter's second exhortation now comes. Not only harmonious, but also sympathetic. Sympathetic. You can see it there in the English. Sum, with pathetic, passion. Literally, it means to feel with others, uh, with passion, with other people. And Romans 12.15 says, as good as any other place in Scripture, rejoice with those who rejoice and what? Weep with those who weep. That's sympathy. You're, you're feeling the same thing as other people. You're feeling with others. And, and when things are going well for those in the church, we ought to rejoice with them. If someone gets a promotion, we ought to rejoice with them. If someone purchases a new house, right? rejoice with them. If someone finds a spouse, He who finds a wife, finds a good thing, rejoice with them. Graduates from high school or or college or achieves something, we should rejoice with them. Receives some kind of special award, we should rejoice with them. We shouldn't be jealous of them. We should rejoice. Things are going well with them. But when things are going poorly with them, with those in church, we ought to weep with them. When someone loses a job or loses a house, or faces the death or illness of a family member, or has an accident, or has surgery. And when they weep, we ought to weep. We ought to feel what they feel. We got to get inside of them and have a similar passion for them. That's what it means to be sympathetic. And when you're part of a sympathetic community of believers, there's a great blessing that's going to come upon your life. First of all, here's the biggest blessing probably, is you won't have to suffer alone. When the suffering comes, it won't be alone because you'll have others who are suffering with you. When the early church leaders were jailed for their faith, the community of believers showed sympathy toward them. They shared in their sufferings. They visited them, helped them, fed them. So they're part of a community with sympathetic people. Though they're in jail, they had sympathy. They had help to come and Help them in time of difficulty. Solomon told us, Two are better than one because they have a good return for the labor. For if either of them falls, the one will lift up his companion. But woe to the one who falls when there is not another to lift him up. That's what sympathizers do. They come alongside. They help. They lift up in moments of weakness. And to live the good life, you need to be sympathetic and surround yourself with sympathetic people. In recent days, our family's been reading Pilgrim's Progress, and uh, we're nearing the end. Um, Hopefully this week we'll get to the Celestial City, guys. I hope so, huh? That'd be good. But they're on their way walking, been through lots of difficulties, but it's Christian hopeful walking along the way, and uh, they're along the way talking, and as they're walking along, they meet someone coming the other way, and his name is Atheist. And uh, they have a little conversation. Atheist finds out where they're headed. They said, we're headed to the celestial city. And and Atheist breaks out in laughter. He says, there's no city. I set out 20 years ago to try to find this city. And I've been looking around. And I, as he says, but I find it no more than I did the first day I sent out. The celestial city is not there. At that point, Christian was believing him. Because, I mean, he's coming from that way. And he said, oh, hopeful. Is it true what this man has said? But hopeful got inside of him and, and sympathized with him. He's, he's not believing now. We need to bring him back. We need to help him. And hopeful reminded him, of, remember when we were up on the Delectable Mountains? We had the telescope and we saw the gate to the city. We saw it. It's real. And Christian was restored in his faith with a sympathetic listener who heard and felt and reminded him and brought him there. That's the good life. And a short time later, they passed through the enchanted ground where hopeful began to get drowsy and wanted to stop and take a nap. And Christian, who sympathized with him, said, I know you're tired, listen, but don't you remember the shepherds bid us beware of the enchanted ground? He said, like, Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. And he was able to get up and continue on. I think that's what we're talking about, sympathy here. The blessing of God comes upon those who sympathize with others because they will be encouraged in the community of believers. Well, let's go to the next phrase. Brotherly. Brotherly. In other words, we ought to relate to one another in a church for the good life as fellow family members. Now, Peter's not referring here to dysfunctional families with poor relationships. He's not talking about families at their worst. He's talking here about families at their best. He's talking about the deep down love and care that family members have for one another. That's what he's talking about. One of the best books that we have used in our home to promote a a family in which God is honored is this book, Making Brothers and Sisters Best Friends. And, uh, you know, if you don't have this book in your home, boy, get it, you know. Uh, Maybe we'll order a bunch. Some of you say, I want that book, I want the book, maybe I'll order a bunch for you. and to save on shipping or something. But this is written by two sisters and a brother, just talking about how they can get along with each other. And uh, as we read this sometimes during our family worship, the kid's always saying, can we read brothers and sisters? Can we read brothers and sisters? Because they love it. Because it speaks so applicational and so helpful to us. <clears throat> In fact, um, this week I want to read for you a section kind of gives you an idea of... Um, how this book is, but also gives you an idea about brothers and how they ought to dwell together, brotherly. This section was written by um, the youngest sibling, Grace was her name. And uh, she's the youngest, so she's talking about how it is the youngest are dealing with the oldest. She says, we all want attention and approval from our big brothers and sisters. If we can't get attention by being nice or helpful, sometimes we go to the other extremes by... And try to get attention by being annoying. This makes it hard for everybody, including our parents. Is this what we want? I have experience in both. So I hope this list encourages you to be a blessing instead of a pest. How to be a blessing? Take them a snack while they are working. Be happy when they succeed. Don't be jealous of them. Send little paper airplanes with notes on them into their room. Be helpful and cooperative when they babysit. Put away their bike for them. Tell your parents the good things you notice about them. Bring them flowers for their room. Well, the brothers maybe blue flowers or a toad. Well, that might not be a blessing to mom. Surprise them by doing one of their chores secretly for them. Let them have the front seat in the car. Give them exceptional service when they are sick and make them cards and taking them books, blankets, and things to do. Don't bother them when they want to be alone. When you first see your brother or sister in the morning, smile and cheerfully say, Good morning, how did you sleep? Surprise them with little candies on their dresser. Comply with what they want to do. In our family, it's Sarah who comes up with big, earth-shaking plans like writing a book because she was the oldest. So I have to decide whether I want to go along with her or not. I've found a big help in things like this is to see it from her perspective. How would I like it if I came up with this great idea and then Sarah and Stephen didn't want to do it? Let them have the last serving of mashed potatoes at supper. Obey them. We younger ones don't like it when our older brother or sister tells us what to do, especially if they are not very much older than we are. But even if it goes against our pride, it's a good practice for us to humble and be with them. And now, how to be a pest. If we, yeah, you're going to like this. (laughs) Take note, guys. If we let ourselves, we can be annoying, irritating little pests, can't we? I'm sure our older siblings would agree. This is quite a talent that we have. Constantly ask, what are you doing? What are you doing? What are you doing? What are you doing? And then never fail to follow up with the second question. Why? 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 If they don't answer, or even if they do, this is sure sign that you should ask the same question again, only louder. Borrow their things and make sure you scratch them or break them. See how long you can talk without stopping, except to take breaths. Go in their room and move things around. When their friends come over, this is the best time to show all your latest toys, tricks, pictures, or tell all your stories. Drink all the milk so they won't have any for breakfast. Always point out when they get details wrong in a story that they are telling. Surprise them with all your junk on their bed. Always talk loudly. In fact, if you yell instead of talk, this really gets them. Get to the bathroom just before they do. Go into the room early in the morning. Flip the lights on. Rip the covers off and loudly exclaim, It's time to get up! (laughs) Maggie, you better watch out tomorrow morning. (laughs) Pound on their bedroom door every five minutes with something else to tell them. Bug them when they're trying to read an interesting book. Get a big smile on your face when they tell you that you are extremely annoying. When they ask you to pass the butter, leisurely spread the butter on your bread first. This is my favorite. Tell them how thankful you are that you don't look like them. (laughs) Tell them that you think their jokes are dumb. Always jump out from corners when they are not expecting it and scare them. This is one of my specialties. Is what he says. Brothers and sisters, best friend. You know, and that that really is a flavor of the whole book. It is so applicational, so down to earth, so practical, so illustrative of so many biblical principles of what it means to make your brothers and sisters your best friends. And I just also say that so also brothers and sisters in the church ought to be best friends. And practically anything that this book mentions about brothers and sisters can easily be applied to the church relationships as well. And that's a good life when church members and people are best friends. Kind-hearted. Kind-hearted It's our fourth word here. Literally, this word carries the idea of having good emotional feelings toward another person. Peter's calling his readers to have a heart that's disposed to kindness and well-being toward another person. Uh, uh, some translations are perfect here. They say tender-hearted. If your translation says tender-hearted, that's perfect. Tender-hearted. Others say compassionate. And they all do a good job of, of getting the concept here. And When Paul uses this word, the one time he used this word... Uh, Ephesians four thirty two. He used it to describe a forgiving attitude towards others. Forgiving them just as God in Christ has forgiven you, is what he's saying. Have a tender heart towards people. And that's really the essential characteristic of what needs to take place if genuine community is going to take place. There needs to be forgiveness granted. Because anytime you have sinners living close together, what's going to happen? They're going to sin, and they're going to sin against who? Against each other. Things will be hard and difficult, and a kind, tender heart of compassion will forgive, allowing the relationship to continue. And I think the great model for us is Christ, particularly with Christ and Peter. Remember the night which he was betrayed? Jesus talked to Peter and talked to all the disciples. He said, You're all going to be scattered. And Peter refused to believe it, and and he told Jesus, even though all may fall away because of you, I will never fall away. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, Peter, this very night before the cock crows, you're going to deny me three times. And and Peter then, no, I'm not. Even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. And yet, sure enough, what did Peter do? He denied him three times, exactly like Peter said. Now, here's the here's the tender heart, here's the compassionate heart, here's the heart of compassion. Think about how Jesus then dealt with the situation. He say, "Peter, I told you so." He didn't. He didn't scold him. Didn't rebuke him. Rather, Jesus restored him with a heart of kindness. Right? Picture that time after the resurrection. He's on the beach. They just had breakfast. Peter and Jesus are kind of sitting back. And Jesus simply asks him, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Peter said, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said, good. He says, tend my lambs. A little time passed. We don't know how long passed. The second time Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter said, yes, Lord, you you know I love you. And then he said, shepherd my sheep. And a third time Jesus asked him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter's kind of exasperated, yes, Lord, You know all things. You know that I love You. And Jesus said, Tend my sheep. Now, think about what Jesus is, is saying here. Think about what He's doing. He's reinstating Peter as a shepherd in the church. Not by rebuking. I'm just saying, you know what? Remember the, the biggest, most important thing for you in your role is to love me. Do you love me? Tend my sheep. Feed my sheep. Shepherd my sheep. That is a kind heart. And that's needed in the body of Christ. A kind heart that restores in that way. Well, a fifth characteristic, humble in spirit. Humble in spirit. Now, at this point, some manuscripts read differently, particularly King James, New King James Version, dealing with a slightly different Greek text. And uh, rather than humble in spirit, those translations say courteous. Now, we could get all about that, but really in many ways, courteous and humble in spirit can can mean in many ways the same thing. The idea is you are putting others' interests instead of yourself. The courteous one is the one who opens the door because I'm thinking of you first. I want you to walk through. The courteous one who lets the other eat first because I'm thinking of you. That's what it means to be humble. That's the definition of humility. Philippians 2. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. <laughs> Regarding in your mind others as more important than yourself. That's what Paul is saying here. And that, of course, was the example of Christ. He thought of others as more important than himself. Philippians 2 says, although he in the form of God, he didn't regard equality with God as something to be grasped, but he emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being <laughs> the likeness of man. Being found in appearance as man, He humbles Himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Here was God Almighty descending to flesh, and then not only descending to flesh, but descending to a disgraceful death in the flesh. And I just say this, church family, if Jesus Christ was willing to come and take the form of a man to die on the cross for you, can you not humble yourself before others? Can you not willingly place yourself under them and serve them and help them? It's a key to a healthy church. Humble in spirit. Apart from humility, a church will crumble. C.J. Mahaney's written an excellent book entitled Humility. A year and a half ago, we studied through this book as men. Had a couple sessions on it. Passed it out. I know the ladies My our ladies Bible study have a CD which C.J. Mahaney spoke about humility and pride. And how many of you listened to that CD or read this book? Quite a few. So you know this illustration. But I'm just saying, I, I talked with Yvonne last night. I said, Should I share this or not? And I said, You know what? This illustration is so good and so powerful and so helpful and so needed for us. We need to hear it today. C.J. Mahaney writes, a few years ago, our church, Covenant Life Church in Gaithersburg, Maryland, celebrated its 25th anniversary. As we gathered on this occasion to rejoice together, Gary Rucucci, who was part of our pastoral team, and one of the church's founding pastors stood before us to present an overview of our history. He observed that though much had changed over the previous 25 years, such as the physical appearance of certain pastors like myself, he went bald over those years, The particular values that were present at our church's inception remained unchanged. Listening intently to Gary that morning was a church member and small group leader named Jim. Before attending Covenant Life, he had been part of a congregation where, regretfully, a serious church split had taken place. As he listened to Gary describe our church's enduring values, Jim's mind was busy comparing these with the values evident in his former church. Why was my experience so different, Jim wondered. He heard Gary affirm that right from the beginning. Covenant like church. Had a love for God's word. And Jim said to himself, yes, we had that. Gary continued, we were in love with Jesus Christ and grateful for his substitutionary sacrifice on the cross. Yes, Jim thought, we had that too. We loved grace and loved worship. Yep, had that. We believed in the importance of relationships, Gary added. Once again, Jim inwardly responded, okay, we had that. Then Gary said, and there was a strong emphasis on humility especially among the leaders. And Jim thought, nope. That we did not have. And then CJ says, let's ask ourselves when it comes to the values we live by, what will others say about us one day? Will they testify that humility characterized our lives? Pride has destroyed many churches and pride will destroy many churches. But humility will bring the good life. And I just ask you, are you humble? You say, well, what's the humble person like? Here's a humble person. The humble person is quick to confess sin. Very quick. The humble person is easy to confront. Because they're so quick to conf- confess sin, they're easy to confront. The humble person... Will seek help from others because a humble person knows I need help. I mean, isn't it a humiliating thing, a humbling thing to ask for help from other people? A humble person will also focus on serving and focus on helping others because they're setting others' interests before themselves. A humble person will defer to others rather than hold on to things himself. I just say, does that describe you? It's key for us to church. It's a key to a blessed life. At the end of Peter, look at First Peter chapter five verse five. look at what Peter says. He's quoting Proverbs 3:34. He says that God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. I mean, think about the good life that comes to the humble. They have the favor of God upon their lives. They have grace that comes to them. And think about the cursed life that comes to the proud. They end up fighting against God because God is opposed to them. And let me just give you a hint. You don't want to fight against God. You want to have a good life? Be harmonious, sympathetic, brotherly, kind-hearted, humble in spirit. And now we get to our last two. Not returning evil for evil or insult for insult, but giving a blessing instead. Peter calls us not to retaliate, not to curse. I think it's best to bring these things together because it's really the same thing. Just talking about evil has come upon you, whether in deed, whether in word, whether in action, whatever, and you are not returning evil for evil. You're not returning insult for insults. Rather, you're doing good. You're overcoming evil with good, as Paul said in Romans 12:21. Rather, you're speaking a blessing. You're speaking kindly instead It says there, right? Insult comes, blessing comes back. Now, I just say this this is so contrary to our nature. If somebody hits you, what's your response? Hit them back. Hit them back harder. If people curse you, what's your response? Curse them back. Only stronger. But here, Peter's merely passing on what we learned from Jesus. Sermon so on the mount. Whoever slaps you on the right cheek, turn your left to him also. So Peter was advocate, Jesus was advocating. If anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, let him have your coat also. Better to be defrauded of possessions than to have conflicts and fights. Whoever forces you to go to one mile, go with them too. That's the idea here. Now, what's interesting is this is no pie-in-the-sky application for Peter's readers. The context of the entire epistle comes during a time of persecution, during a time of intense difficulties. We saw in chapter 1, verse 6, various trials. We see in chapter 2, verse 12. Look at that. It says, Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles, so that in the thing in which they slander your evildoers... You're, you're keeping your excellent behavior and they are calling you evildoers, slandering you. This isn't pie in the sky. This is happening to them. There was this antagonism against Christianity that was coming from outside the church. These people are, are, are worshiping a, a dead man. These people are cannibals because they're eating his flesh and, and drinking his blood. right? And they're secret. They're cultish. All these things slandering them. And, and to that, they were not supposed to insult in return oh yeah you don't know rather they're supposed to give a blessing instead speak kindly to people chapter 3 verse 14 you see more of that even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness there it is you're doing righteousness and you're suffering for it now these sufferings primarily it was talking about here in chapter 2 verse 12 and 3:14 are coming from those outside the church Should those inside the church inflict you with harm, which can easily happen, the principle is the same. We ought not to retaliate. You want to live a good life? Don't be a retaliator. Rather, we should be a model of godliness, like Christ. He's our example, and that's what Peter already said. Chapter 2, verse 21. Again, you've been called for this purpose. Just like chapter 3, verse 9. You were called for this very purpose. What's the purpose? Christ suffered for you, leaving an example to follow in His steps. So your purpose is to follow the example of Christ who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in His mouth. While being reviled, He did not revile in return. While suffering, He uttered no threats. And He, loved ones, became our example of how we ought to model our lives. Now, I think we can understand non-retaliation but, but how can non-retaliation lead to the good life? How does that tie? I mean, we think that non-retaliation is going to lead to the worst life for us, don't we? I mean, don't we retaliate because we want to make sure that they're not going to curse me again because I'm going to smack them hard enough? But verse 9 ties this idea of a blessing into this very thing. Not returning evil for evil or insult for insult, but giving a blessing instead. For you call for this purpose that you might inherit a blessing. Think about this. God has called each and every one of you to a purpose. Here's your purpose. He's called you to be insulted. Think about that. That's your call, is to be insulted. God has called you to be on the receiving end of evil. (laughs) There's a good life for you. Because he's called you to respond differently to the world around you, rather than fighting for your rights, you to continue in doing good. And when you do this, what happens? It'll be an opportunity for you to give glory to God, because people will see that and say that is different. And they will, chapter three, verse fifteen, ask you, give me account for the hope that's within you, because you're living so differently. And in doing this, your joy, here's where the blessed life comes, will exceed the joy of others around you. Because you will live the good life and know the blessing of God. Look at verse 14. I didn't finish it before. Even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. He's not here merely talking about the blessing will come. Yes, it will come. But right now, you are blessed. Right? So think about it. When evil's coming upon you, people insulting you, and know that right then, you have the opportunity to live the good life. And the good life is the non-retaliatory life. And As you live that way, you will be blessed. You say, does that really happen? Is that really the case? Well, when the early apostles were flogged for preaching in the name of Jesus, they went on their way rejo- from the presence of the council rejoicing that they had been considered worthy to suffer shame for His name. They were rejoicing because they were suffering shame for the name of Christ. So when you walk righteously and don't retaliate in it, you rejoice. When those in the early church experienced persecution, they rejoiced too. The writer of the Hebrews says, you accepted joyfully the seizure of your property. People coming, taking your property. And what happened? God was so blessed them that they allowed that to happen with joy. Joy filled their hearts because of the reward. You know you have a a better possession and a lasting one, right? The blessing comes because of the future reward. Your joy comes now because of what you have in the future. And to suffer well now You need to rejoice in the future. Jesus said, Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad. Why? Because your reward in heaven is great. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So, church family, don't lose sight of that fact that there's blessing ahead. Notice, you walk righteously and don't retaliate and give blessings instead. You will receive a joy. You will experience the blessing of God. You want to live the good life? Be harmonious. Be sympathetic. Be brotherly. Be kind-hearted. Be humble in spirit. Don't return evil for evil or insult for insult. And that's my first point. Called to harmony. Next week we'll look at my second point called to purity. Let's pray. Lord, as I prayed in the preparation of my sermon, as I prayed in the middle of my sermon, as I pray now at the end of my sermon, I pray that You would so work these things among us. You know far better than we of our great need for these things. And you know far better than we have um, God how we need you to accomplish these things in our life. So come and convict us. I pray that each one of us, even here in the moment of time, might pick one of these and focus upon that one for the next several months or year. Just find one of these characteristics. Say, I need to get better at that. God, will you help me to get better at that? For the sake of the Gospel, Lord, will You help me get better at that. So Lord, may You work in our church, Lord, that we might know and understand what the good life really is. Amen.